This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is John Lepley, and I am one of the hosts. And today, I am very excited to talk with Jack Metzger, the author of Bridging the Divide, Working Class Culture in a Middle Class Society, which was published by the ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press in 2021. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good to talk to you, John. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad we could finally connect. And to start with, Jack, can you can you tell us about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, and uh, some of the work you've done over the years? Because I, you know, on one hand, that's just something that happens with all the interviews here, but I think it's also uh, very relevant to uh, the subject matter of your book. Yeah, I, I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in a steelworker family with a lot of steelworker uncles and neighbors and in a steel town, uh, was a steel town then. Um, went to school in a variety of different places, got my doctorate at, from Northwestern University, which I hated going to because <laughs> it's a really upper class place. Um and then taught for 30 years at uh, in an adult education program at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Um, retired from there in 2016, I think it was. Um, and, uh, and along the way, I was an editor of uh, Labor Research Review, which during the 80s, during the period around concessions and plan closings, uh, the Midwest Center for Labor Research was very active in opposing both concessions and uh, plant closings. Uh, we had various kind of complicated relations with the, the leadership of the steelworkers at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we put out, I think, maybe 14 issues of Labor Research Review that really pioneered a lot of the stuff that people take for granted today. Not that we came up with it, but we were reporting what uh, what various uh, unions were doing, local unions were doing around the country. Mm-hmm. So Jack, at uh, Roosevelt University, what were some of the, the subjects that you taught over the years? Well, 
I would, um, my main job, I was a general uh, uh, educator. That is, I taught writing. <clears throat> I taught a, my main course was a senior thesis that bachelor's, the undergraduate students had to write. Uh, I taught a humanities seminar, social sciences seminar. Uh, so it was very, very general. And all adults, people had to be over 25 to be in my classes, class. And uh, so we had a wide range of uh, mm -hmm. uh, ages, mixed race, about half black, half white, uh, right in downtown Chicago, commuter school. Um, most people worked during the day and came to school at night. Um, and then I also got involved at Roosevelt at first and then a variety of places in labor education, uh, um, mostly on big picture stuff, economics, politics, uh, some labor management stuff, uh, never steward training because I've yeah. never processed agreements. Okay. Well, you know? I'm glad you talked about that, Jack, because it seems like a lot of those experiences uh, helped inform and, and shape a, a lot of this, uh, the book that we're talking about today. And uh, I'd like to start with with your title. Actually, there's two parts. the The main title is "Bridging the Divide," and then there's the subtitle "Working Class Culture in a Middle Class Society." So, can you can you tell listeners like what is the question that you're you're asking in this book, and uh, what are some of the the big themes that you're looking to explore in here? Yeah, I. Um... I'm not actually asking any questions. I'm uh, answering them. <laughs> you know, I'm presenting my view of that American society is composed of, of two class cultures that are ordinarily not recognized as such. Um, professional middle class culture emphasizes, and, th and this is the vast majority of people are in one, one or two of these cultures. Uh, professional middle class culture emphasizes aspiration, achievement, becoming, and has a very flexible sense of self. Working class culture, according to me, um, emphasizes character, authenticity, and belonging. Uh, working class culture has a more solidaristic sense. They're anti status. That, that culture tends to reinforce being anti status. Uh, whereas middle class culture is very much concerned with um, status, uh, and there's a variety of other uh, other differences. The main theme of the book and the bridging the divide title is was not mine, but I think it's appropriate. Um, is that each of these cultures, as I've just described them, are good cultures, uh, and they're nudging us or providing guidelines or pressures on us to act or expect different things. Yeah. Uh, both of them are good. And my, my view is they need to be in co contact with each other uh, because each has strengths and weaknesses that given those two co different cultural emphases, they can uh, uh, offset each other's strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Now, go on, Jack. a good I'm part sorry. of that, yeah, a, a good part of that is the reason it isn't recognized that there are two class cultures is that the professional middle class culture is taken as mainstream in the American culture. And that culture looks at working class culture and thinks there's no culture there at all, or there's a deficit. 
uh, and de- and define working class culture by what it lacks in comparison to, to middle class culture. So it sets up a series of conflicts and uh, be- that that ignorance in professional middle class culture of an alternative culture, a different culture than their own, um, our own. Um, it sets up a series of, of conflicts, but also of uh, potential complementarities. Yeah. So, yeah, Jack, that reminds me of this, this uh, you know, famous quote. I, I heard a historian once, uh, you know, say that, I'm paraphrasing here, but but writing about culture is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. And, uh, you, know, can, you know, so you're talking about class culture. Could you talk about um for you how do you what factors go into working class uh versus middle class like are you talking about wealth income occupation uh you know what factors uh inform you know how how we think about class and how classes look at each other the the, the way i define class is by occupation by the relationship to the means of production. When I'm talking about culture, however, and and I don't think that it lines up perfectly with what your occupation is. Mm -hmm. Lots of different things influence our class cultures. But uh, when I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about something that's outside the individual and yet has been internalized in part or in whole by, by individuals. So I'm trying to describe, the jelly I'm trying to describe is um, the kinds of pressures, guidelines, expectations uh, that our culture uh, around us, uh, uh, pressures, guides, uh, and nudges us in one direction rather than rather than another. Yeah. Uh, so it's about priorities. And sure. I you know, individuals, we all, process whatever culture we're brought up in we react to that differently some mm-hmm. of us rebel some of us com- completely accept it some you know pick some parts and not other parts uh and then other experiences as you grow older uh of course mesh and, cha- and change that yeah actually you know jack you mentioned uh i think you said pressures guides and guidelines and uh, a concept that you mentioned early on, I think in your introduction is this idea of mediocrity. And when I first read that, that, that actually sort of hit, hit me in the gut because I think uh, for some people, you know, that that's a, that's a word that for some people it's, it's not something that they would want to be described as, but, but you make the argument, but Hey, mediocrity is, is okay. But then it goes to this, um, um, it, it's part of a difference or it helps set up the differences between uh, the different classes. Could you uh, elaborate on, on what you mean by mediocrity? And also where did this idea come from? Oh, that's a lot. Uh, one, I, I lead the book with an introduction that's titled achieving mediocrity. And part of that is um, based on my own experience. I think I achieved mediocrity and I'm damn proud of that. Um, uh, but it's kind of a smart ass, uh, poke at professional middle-class culture, because if you're mediocre, 
that means the actual word means you're okay, you're adequate, uh, you're average, maybe even a little above average. You're good, but you're not excellent. You're mediocre. And the poke at, at middle class culture is this striving to be excellent, which is to excel others, um, to be outstanding. Um, that's part of middle class culture that I don't find very attractive. Yeah. Working class culture, on the other hand, the aspiration is more often to be good and to be a good person, but to be good at this or good at that, not, not to necessarily excel somebody else or to be outstanding. And some parts of the, the culture actually have sanctions, working class culture have sanctions against being a show off and, you know, uh, thinking you're better than, than other people. Um, so that's what I was trying to get at. But the other thing is that then I discovered that both in the American Revolution and the French Revolution, the word mediocrity was used to mean the common mass of humanity and that society should be organized around benefiting the common mass of, of, medi uh, of, of mediocrity. Uh, Benjamin Franklin talks about it. The Jacobins talk about it in, in, in France. Um, and so I take, I try to turn it around and see how <clears throat> in working class culture, there's a value to being common, ordinary, regular, um, you know, we'll say, oh, he's a regular guy. Well, that's a good thing to be, you know, that, but that's the same thing as mediocrity. So it's in a, in a middle class, uh, setting. Um, so that's what I try to begin with. Um, and part of that when i say i've achieved mediocrity um part of it is you know i i've advanced i've uh, moved up uh in the the standard uh, hierarchy <clears throat> but i've also maintained a certain common uh, touch <laughs> and that's mediocrity they, you know that's that commonness and that valuing commonness that uh I'm after in work and um, it, it resides in working class culture, but it is not absent in a lot of middle class culture as uh, as well. Okay, uh, so Jack, I want to sort of uh, you know we talked about the introduction briefly. Now I want to talk about part one or the the first four chapters of your book, and in here you write about. Uh, you know, the glorious 30. And I was wondering, and, uh, you know, could you talk about this and why, why this period is so important? Because at one point uh, on page 22, you say you actually have, you know, nostalgia for this period. And, and you know, you elaborate on, on what that means. And, uh, you know, what are the takeaways of this? Like, what, what is the glorious 30? And what, why is it so important today? Okay, that I mean, I took four chapters <laughs> to do this. It's hard for me to, to sum up, but I want to start with the negative. What I'm not nostalgic for is a time when white men ruled, when things were more difficult for women and blacks and gays, and um, that's not what I'm nostalgic for. But I'm, and, and I'm not nostalgic for the 50s. I'm nostalgic for the whole period from 1945 to 1975. That's the 30 years. And what happened during that period that not only am I nostalgic for, I think everybody should be nostalgic for, 
is that real the single most important thing that happened is real wages for production and non-supervisory workers, also for others, but for production and non-supervisory workers, increased on average 2% a year. And they doubled from 1947 to 1972 or something like that. Doubled. That is, they doubled the average standard of living. And during that time, the bottom 20% of income earners uh, increased at a, for households, increased at a faster rate than the top or the second uh, 20%. So that's the core of it. Um, but more importantly, I mean, as a result of that, people's sense of possibility expanded. And I quote this passage from Tocqueville that is about um, once things begin to change, it doesn't satisfy people. Instead, they begin to recognize other injustices. So this 30 years, if you look at American history, this 30 years was a golden age for collective action. Now, in the labor movement, we look to the 30s as the, the foundation. But what the labor movement gained and how powerful it was, was during that 30 years. And the labor movement inspired the civil rights movement, uh, the women's movement, in indirect ways, uh, the women's movement, gay rights movement, Chicanos. Uh, <clears throat> collective action was uh, engaged in and made a bigger difference during that 30 years. And it's based in that material prosperity where people's lives were getting better. And they said, hell, if we if we overcame this injustice, we can overcome this other one. Um, third thing is the professional middle class, those jobs, uh, educators particularly, but all kinds of professional and managerial jobs uh, were increasing at that time, um, not paid so much better than uh, production workers are now, but um, they were easier jobs. They were less dangerous and dirty and all of that. Uh, but the classes, the two class cultures fed and watered each other during that 30 period, 30 year period, which is what the book about culture wants to um, model after. But that model is based on material prosperity. So in the end, my, my my point is, and I have a little bit of a program uh, for how to increase material prosperity, and that will, in fact, uh, have positive cultural consequences. Yeah, Jack, when I was reading these first four chapters, I, I one, I couldn't help but think of uh, one of your previous books. Uh, I can't remember the year it was published. I think maybe 1999. Uh, 2000, yeah. 2000 uh, your fantastic book called Striking Steel, Solidarity Remembered, which is uh, Thank you. one sort of a, a memoir of your relationship with your dad, but uh, two during uh, one of the most pivotal strikes in U.S. history, the uh, 116 day 1959 steel strike. And uh, I think that your account is, I think, by far still one of the most thorough accounts uh, of that pivotal strike. So I, I really want to flag readers if they, if they haven't uh, read that yet, you definitely should. Uh, the, another thing that I was running through my mind when I was reading these chapters, O'Jack, is um, 
I couldn't help but think of the aftermath and the run up to the 2016 elections when, uh, you know, you couldn't help but open a newspaper or a journal or, or listen to a podcast where uh, the, the professional uh, journalistic class uh, was talking about the uh, the white working class and their grievances and, and how that played out in a 2016 election. And I I want to flag for readers that I, I think the word Trump uh, the name Trump is mentioned once in the index. You you don't directly talk about that, but I you know I can't help but think that did somehow influence you, or or you were interacting with that, responding to it in some ways, and in, in uh, this uh, you know this notion of the white working class. Could you comment on that, Jack? You know, I, I've written a fair a deal in articles about the white working class and the how they vote. Uh, and that, it, that is defined as white people with, that, who don't have bachelor's degrees. Uh, but I say explicitly in the book that I have nothing to say about the white working class uh -huh. because I'm talking about the culture of the working class as a whole, 40% yeah. of which is black or brown. Mm -hmm. um, or, or Asian um, so and I am trying to say th these cultures cross racial and gender lines not without differences there are differences as well but there's commonalities in the class cultures based in material in material circumstances um, and I'm, I'm often asked um when I think about the the white you know whites without uh, bachelor's degrees voting for Trump in such high numbers, um, and and that they did that in in twenty twenty as well as twenty sixteen, um, a little better, and that made a big difference, but a little little more democratic. But um, I think these cultural differences are in the background of the political differences. And when progressives just write off the right white working class as nothing but racist, that's a terrible mistake. It's not like there isn't racism among uh, white working class. And I could tell you about some of my relatives. Um, but it, it isn't just that. There is this cultural conflict that working class people see, particularly on television, but in other forms of uh, uh, professional life, going to a hospital, uh, going, going to a, a, a university, uh, where this professional middle class culture takes itself for granted and doesn't understand that it's just one version of how to, to live a life. Um, and they actually denigrate uh, working class ways. Uh, and that builds resentment across races. You know, the uh, both blacks and Hispanics vote heavily uh, Democratic, but in the last two elections, they've decreased their um, the size of their majority for for Democrats, um, and that's it's complicated. That's complicated by all kinds of factors, but I do think the kind of cultural differences I'm talking about, and the way middle class culture tends to be imperial. Um, and take itself as the one and only good culture uh, is is background for some of our political divisions. Yeah, I I can't help but think that also, you know, 
class composition is constantly changing. And, you know, just a few moments ago, you talked about, uh, you know, during the Glorious 30, uh, professors, university professors were were part of this middle class. And, and you look at uh, that nowadays, uh, and many professors are, I think listeners uh, of this podcast will, will be aware, uh, are... Um, struggling at holding down multiple jobs as adjunct faculty members and, and doing other jobs just to keep uh keep bread on the table so uh it's like you have these two separate cultures uh rooted in the classes and the classes meanwhile are constantly changing uh the the occupational uh their basis in occupations and everything like that but so, John, I, I make a distinction uh within the professional middle class between elite and uh, standard issue mm -hmm. uh, uh, professionals. And uh, you can see that in most universities, even the fanciest universities now, between those who have tenure and have very good salaries and very light workloads, if you don't count their research, very light teaching load, let's say. And then this whole army, army of contingent, either uh, course by course or year by year, yeah. faculty who are paid much less, uh, their job security is less, and that portion of the the faculty they're organizing, and uh, you know, there's many other prof most professions now you can divide between that privileged elite who have very good working conditions and salaries and a uh, proletariat uh, within the professional middle class educated uh, and still with better incomes than most uh, factory workers and service workers. Yeah. So Jack, I want to turn now to the, the middle section of your book and, and you've, you talked about this early on, uh, but I'd like to unpack this a little more where you write about, there's uh, the shared class interest between working class people and, and middle class people. And, and uh, you use the phrase, they, they, they have a unity as free wage labor. Uh, some, as you just said, are more precarious than others, different occupations and so on. But can you explain how these cultures, uh, as you say, they balance and enrich each other? Um. Two different things. It, interest is one thing, and then the cultures balancing uh, and enriching each other is a is an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. uh, on the interests, even elite middle class professionals are wage workers. That is, someone let's say someone's making one hundred forty thousand dollars a year. That's a really good salary. That puts them in the top 20 percent for sure. Um, but they are still a wage worker. If if that wage is withdrawn, now they'll have more savings than a, a typical worker. Uh, but if that wage is withdrawn and they cannot get a job for a year or two, um, they're dead. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're in the same uh, mm -hmm. situation. So professional middle class and uh, working class are all free wage workers. Now there's some free wage workers like LeBron James, who makes such a good salary yeah. that 
they, they can quit anytime uh, they want. And I wish he would. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so there is a group you know, that, that of the middle class, stand, what I call standard issue professional middle class professionals, which is the largest group among professionals, and that includes managerial workers in mm-hmm. my my uh, county, um, that have interests that are the same, or at least very similar to working class interests. And in among the working class, I make a division between settled living and hard living. The hard living are a bigger group than, than, when, than we define as poor. There are people are li- literally living paycheck to paycheck. They're at least a third of all, of all workers, including uh, professionals. So, but particularly the settled living working class that has a decent income, often paycheck to paycheck as well, but um, has a decent decent standard of living. And the standard issue uh, professional middle class, which has you know, usually a decent standard of living, but even when they don't, they have education, which has uh, more than one kind of benefit. So that there's a, a synonymity of interest between the settled living and the standard issue but that's where the cultural differences make uh, make the biggest difference both those groups have a vested interest as classes as groups of people um in bringing up the bottom because the bottom um that the hard living working class their wages and conditions are what are pulling our wages and conditions down they're part of uh part of it so that's interests. Now, the balance, um, according to me, one culture um, emphasizes authenticity and being true to yourself. The other culture um, emphasizes improving yourself. Yourself is flexible. You can become something different, something better than what you are, and you should try to do that. Well, both of those cultures seem to me really, I mean, yeah, you should be authentic and true to yourself and you should make yourself better. Those two, those two cultural emphases need to offset each other. When the middle class sees self as so flexible that you can always be improving yourself and you need to get better and better and better. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous stress and pressure that, also, with this status sense of excelling, you know, is a major cause of mental health issues in the middle class. Uh, conversely, working class people with a, this, this uh, worldview about authenticity and being true to yourself, they often limit themselves in what they uh, might, uh, might become and what they can do. And I spent a lot of my life as a, an adult educator trying to convince uh, working, working people, uh, not that you can be anything you want, you know, but that you can do that, the next thing. In labor education, for example, I'm sure this is part of your experience too, teaching, speaking, public speaking, you know, is a tremendously empowering thing. People, and people think, you know, people that are really good workplace leaders uh, think, oh no, I, I, I couldn't speak, uh, uh, 
you know, in, in front of the, the boss or, you know, and, and once they learn some public speaking, it is tremendously empowering. So that's how I see the two cultures uh, uh, offsetting each other and influencing each other over time, not one culture becoming the other or some kind of magic synthesis of the two, but just the the influence that interaction has. And there is less and less interaction between working class and middle class people um, because of where we live, how we work, uh, etc. Et this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, th- th- there's a lot to unpack there. And I, th- I think what you just said that, uh, you know, working class people and middle class people are having less and less interactions with each other, really, in terms of, of space and geography. Uh, you're hearing more and more about that. Um, you, you said something a moment ago about, um, you know, working class ways of life. And the last third of your book has the these chapters where you you describe you put these concepts forward uh, and then you describe them. And I found these uh, some of the most fascinating parts of your book. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the these different concepts that you you come up with. Uh, the first is seeding control to gain control. The second is taking it and living in the moment. And then the third is is working class realism. Could you talk about these and also, you know, what in your experiences as, as an adult educator, uh, how did that influence, uh, you know, your, your writing about this? I'm going to do the first one last. Okay. And you mentioned striking steel and, and how much of it was a, a reflection on my father. Uh, who was a steel worker, but he was also a griever, and he was a, uh, a union militant uh, who, over time, got disenchanted with the union. But um, he was just a very pro-union guy who was also very talkative to the point of arrogance. Um, and so, as a child, I grew up with getting a lot of union education that. I didn't know I was getting. Later, when I taught in labor education, I realized, man, I know a lot about this stuff. You know, I've never been in the, well, not that I had never been in a union, but I'd never been active in a union. I I was a janitor, in graduate school, I was a janitor, a cab driver, and all these were union jobs in Chicago. But, um, and then as a teacher, uh, 
Well, not, let, let me let me step back. When I went to college initially, and then eventually, particularly when I was at Northwestern for my graduate degree, you know, there was this culture clash, like, um, and that's you know that this is very common. Most first generation college students uh, talk about how how they felt out of place and the dumb and you know uh, uh, what's it called. Uh, imposter syndrome and things like that um so so i had that but then when i taught working adults i i really recognized how much of my culture even though i had been assimilated to the middle class um was still working class and how much i appreciated it and my students actually helped me get back to it in some ways which my wife who's also from a working class background we were like childhood sweethearts she's still much more working class than me she dressed that she dresses fancy but she lives in the moment she's good at taking it you know all the all these uh aspects of things um so that's that's how i came about it and it's a combination and i really recommend this for people in, in thinking about culture a combination of self-reflection and observation of others um, and there's a kind of dialectic there that I think for most people uh, can be pretty rich if they they think through their own kind of cultural autobiography. Um, and of course, there's ethnicity and gender and all other kinds of things to think about in addition to class. But the class part of it is uh, very rich and particularly for those of us from working class backgrounds uh, who become assimilated uh, in, in the middle class. Now, the three things, there's just so much, <laughs> I took three chapters for the, and I think you're right, this is the most original and contestable part of the book, but the seeding control to gain control, I recognized as a very common um, working class aspect. I recognized it in myself when I would go into a new situation, I would uh seed control of the larger situation just by instinct and find that area that niche where i could control it um and that might be a, in a workplace that might be at a dinner party it might you know this is just uh and so i think that's a common working class way and i think it's embedded the basic idea of seeding control to gain control is embedded in the wage relationship, where even as professionals, but particularly as, as work, in working class occupations, we give up our freedom for eight hours a day, do what we're told by and large, um, and in order to have the other 16 hours, eight hours of which we should be sleeping, uh, but we have this uh, free time, which we get a wage for. And that wage, if it, um, you know, that that's the freedom part of life. Mm -hmm. So that working class culture is based around a sense of uh, necessity is there. Bad things are there. They're always going to be there. Um but you can see you can see control, see control of your day, see control of your life in order to gain control elsewhere. 
Yeah. When people actually are in the workplace, they do the same thing. They they cede control, but they find spaces of autonomy within it. Now it's a lot harder today with all the monitoring that happens, say in an Amazon warehouse or something like that, um, than it was. But uh, my my dad would tell stories about how they ran the the still mill. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I couldn't help but think of that phrase. I, I think it was from uh, you know Big Bill Haywood. What is it? The manager's brain is under the workman's cap. Like, yeah. uh, who runs the workplace? Is it the workers who who do the work day in day out? They they have the the tacit knowledge, if you will, of of doing yeah. things, or is it the supervisor who ostensibly directs them? Right, and the smart supervisor knows that he's not going to be able to control things, you know, with, without getting the cooperation of the, of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, it's this kind of instinctive thing to seed control to gain control. Now that has some um, negative, negative consequences. And what I think we can see in the last 20 and 30 years that workers as a whole have seeded more and more and more and it's not like that's irrational like they had a menu say do or don't do not see you know they've been under attack the decline of unions the uh there's just just general decline of neoliberal um work uh, work life um but the, the culture plays into that in a way that uh when you see more and more there's less and less where you can gain uh, gain control. Uh, but but I want to emphasize that it's a valuable seating control to gain control is a valuable culture when you have sufficient resources, time and money uh, in your and those are the key determinants of the material uh, circumstances. And compared paid favorably with middle class culture, which tends to be upset with um, one bad thing happening, <laughs> and um, not not envisioning that a part of life will be hard and mm-hmm. nasty and dirty, and um, you know you just you just have to be able to live with that. And that's the next thing. That's taking it. Uh, do you want to intervene here? <laughs> no, uh, if uh, if you want to continue, Jack, uh, I um, when I was reading these, I, I I felt so many light bulbs go off in in my uh, in in my head because I thought, oh my gosh, like that happened in my life. I can remember this from my childhood. I can't think of specific moments, but I, I had that feeling like, gosh, this is how I grew up. Yeah, I, I saw this play out in my family. I uh, and I can't remember if it was in the the seeding control to gain control or, or this next concept. But you also write that these can be grounds for collective action. Like if, if you're giving, as you say, you're giving yourself over to the employer for eight hours and, and for many workers, it's now 10 or 12 or longer. Uh that also it, it, it can become a basis for for collective action to improve that time. That's right, and that's the uh, uh, the the next concept where I talk about taking it. 
Um, and that's very close to the seating, seating control, where in working class upbringing, especially, we're taught, we were taught, there are bad parts of life you're just going to have to endure. And one of those is probably work. <laughs> uh, and maybe we feel that way about school, you know, but you you take that part uh, in order to get a, a realm of, of freedom part. Jack, when, um, yeah. If I, uh, you know, a question just came up, and if you if you want to address this after, not to interrupt you, but yeah, how do you see masculinity uh, or ideas of gender playing into that? Uh, of because I, when I think of taking it, I think of uh, you know grit, uh, toughness, uh, other phrases that that I think are associated could be associated with this idea of taking it. Yes. Uh, I actually make a gender distinction on taking it, and that is men talk about it a lot more um, and will counsel each other. You just got to take it. You got to take it. I, you know, I'm able to take it. People, will, men will brag about being able to take it. Women do much less of that, but they have the ethic uh, much stronger um, and at least the workplace women in my life have approached it as there's going to be a lot of shit you have to take. Uh, and sometimes that's from uh, husbands and children and, you know, uh, uh, as well as, as, as employers. Um, and as I point out in the book, there's a downside to that and that getting too acclimated to taking it means that you're not trying to change your circumstances as much as you might. Uh, but on the upside of that, when things are improving and you get a broader sense of possibility, even if they're not improving for you, you get this broader sense of what could be pro possible, then taking it is a base for moving forward. Yeah. Uh, so that, and, that reminds me of the point you made about uh, Tocqueville earlier uh, right. you know, during the French Revolution, people's expectations, their sense of the possible got got raised. Right. Right. And and then taking it in a seating control uh, approach to life, uh, you know, that can be very valuable in a way that is uh, harder for a middle class person who is expecting immediate payoff for mm -hmm. uh, that initial action. Not that working class people aren't hoping for a media payoff too, but uh, <laughs> you know, and as an organizer, you know, uh, you don't want to organize people to uh, engage in something that they're going to lose. Right, you know, that doesn't help exist expand that sense of the possible. No, we want victories, not not uh, not promises that don't materialize. Right, right. Uh, so your last concept uh working class realism is the one that really struck a chord for me and i i think it's also really good in driving home how uh you know working there is a genuine working class culture and it can uh be really good for for middle class people particularly on you know dealing with with expectations and i, I can't remember what particular page but you have this quote where you say it's not so much you can do anything or you can be whatever you want to be, but you can do this or you can do that. Can can you talk about 
you know, this idea of working class realism and, and how, you know, it could play out in families? Yeah, I, um, not sure where to start. <laughs> People like the story that I tell about I'm going into the seventh grade, which in the, my school system was comparable to being a freshman. Because uh, you're going from a small elementary school to this huge junior high school with four grades. And um, so I, you know, changed my demeanor and my dress and my haircut. I'm not going to tell you about the haircut, but this is the 1950s. Um, and so I asked my mother, am I handsome? And my mother didn't take very long to think about it. And she said, Nah, you're you're just sort of plain, <laughs> but you're okay. <laughs> and for a middle class, you know, I've told this story before, and and people will go, like, <laughs> what a terrible thing to say to your child, <laughs> you know, just say, you know, you're special, and, and you know, avoid the question or lie and say you are handsome, you know, uh, but that's an example, I think, of working class realism, the positives of it. Because it had helped me adjust myself, you know. I, I was I was figuring I could be a ladies' man in the seventh grade, and she's telling me, uh, "You might you might want to do sports instead." <laughs> you know, uh, that that this realism gives you a, a a limited sense of possibility, and that's the downside of it. But it gives you a more realistic sense of possibilities where there are real limits to what you can can do given who you are in the situation uh that you're whereas, in. Oh, and whereas in in say middle class culture there's this you know culture of uh striving of attainment of perfection and for many people who don't get there i, I think as you alluded to earlier that can lead to uh, you know serious consequences later in life uh, mental illness depression yeah. anxiety and so on right and you know, I haven't known a lot of professional middle class people like this, but when I have, you know, it's just like they're never comfortable with themselves. They're always, um, uh, you know, and people who brag on themselves and say what the what's on their resume and I did this and I did that, uh, and they it, they just they just sort of make me nervous <laughs> to be around them uh, because they they're so uh, what you could call. Uh, unhappy in their own skin or uncomfortable in their own skin. Uh, and so in each of these, I try to show the value of seeding control, taking it, living in the moments and working class realism, uh, even though all of them have a downside, just as um, comparable middle-class um, ways of doing things uh have positives but they also have downsides yeah so jack is i you know i think about your book i see i see elements of history of sociology and you know uh, i think in your introduction and your acknowledgments you write that this is part of comes out of a community uh of scholars of activists uh, involved in something called working class studies yeah. And in fact, I think you're uh, you're involved with the Working Class Studies Association. Could you talk about what what is working class studies? Where, where does it come from? Oh, it, 
it it came from Youngstown State University in 1995. Um, and it drew on labor studies. One of the founders was John Rousseau, who's a, a labor educator at Youngstown State. Uh, women's studies and um, art and representation um, people. So, and it defined initially, and I think it's kept that that sense, that we want to talk about actually existing working class people, uh, their lived experience, and come at it in any damn way we want, we, we find useful. Um, and to, in many ways, although uh, many of us are Marxist or Marxist-oriented, Working on studies leaned against the kind of uh, rote way that Marxists can talk about the working class without ever having much, if any, experience of it. So we particularly valued people from working class backgrounds who are academics. That's a group of us. But there's also a group of us who are from middle class backgrounds, sometimes from upper middle class backgrounds, who find themselves teaching at a working class university like Youngstown State, and they're going the culture uh, clash the other way. Um, and a general kind of political pro-union left uh, uh, perspective among academics. But it's really a, a mission to let's pay attention to the actually existing working class. Let's value our own observation and experience as well as uh, the kind of more um, uh, academic study in, uh, that we do. Yeah. So Jack, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and I'll just share this with readers. Jack and I have talked about this book before. And, and in one of our previous discussions, Jack, uh, you said that union, you don't talk about unions in here that much. Uh, but, you know, I'm, kind of putting you on the spot right now could you talk about what role do unions play in uh the, the formation of these cultures oh what a good question wow <laughs> you are putting me on the spot john uh let me explain first i made a really dedicated effort to not talk about the union working class because it's a minority and, and even back in the glory days of unions in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, it was a minority, a large minority, but still. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about working class culture that wasn't union culture. Uh, and that was hard for me because I'd spent so many years in labor education and uh, union or union related activism and things. Um, so, so that's why there's not much about unions in the book. And I, I think it's a deficit of the book that it doesn't ans answer the question that you just asked me. And that is, to what extent did unions um, shape this culture? And for the most part, I think I'm talking, you know, before there were unions, after there were unions, because some of this goes back to kind of peasant survival culture mm -hmm. uh, uh, from Europe and from Africa. Uh, but it's it's a good question because the glorious 30 was created by the American labor movement. 
Yeah. There's no doubt in, in my mind or most as, as historians. And I say in the book that that glorious 30, 45 to 75, was, and nobody has contested this so far, uh, the best 30-year period for any working class anywhere on the earth at any time. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you could look at China in the last 30 years and say, well, you know, maybe more people came out of poverty. Well, more people did come out of poverty, but they didn't have the kind of freedom and agency right. that the labor movement uh, had during that 30 years. Yeah. What what you just said reminds me of, uh, you know, this this beautiful quote from your book, Striking Steel. I think we're uh... You say that for your dad, he divided life into two ways, life before the union and life after the union. And and as you write about in, in here, uh, in Bridging the Divide, is that this was a, a total transformation in life. And at several points, you know, you, you refer to the eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what we will. Um, so, Jack, I've really enjoyed this. And, uh, you know, I... I, I don't have any other questions, but I'll turn it over to you. If you have anything that I might have missed in my uh, in my questions, and uh, if not, I'll just leave. Uh, you know, end with you know what else are you working on, or what else interests you nowadays? Um, I'm really just working with other writers, uh, other scholars uh, on their what they're doing, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, that's that's very fulfilling. I don't have, as you and I have talked, there are things I'd like to do with the steelworkers or uh, that history from 46 to 59. This completely fascinates me, or maybe from 41 to 59. Um, I'd like to write about, and I've spoken uh, some uh, uh, about the, the radicals, the college student revolutionaries who went into auto and steel and the telephone company and uh, how they fared. Uh, you know, some of them in the Pittsburgh area, they'll remain nameless. But, yeah. uh, uh, and the, both the impact they had and the kind of uh, admirable lives that, uh, that they lived. Most of them now are like me in their seventies. Uh, but I, I'm not very ambitious anymore. I think I've, you know, the Striking Steel and the Bridging Divide book, that's what I had to say. And I, I really feel lucky that uh, I got the opportunity to uh, get it all out on uh, in words and paper. Well, uh, these books uh, are, are anything but mediocre, Jack. They are, <laughs> they are uh, this is an excellent book. Um, and I, I encourage listeners to, to read it. And I really want to thank you for your time today, Jack. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.